Okay, Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for our church family and for being an awesome God. I just pray that you'll be with Mr. Boyens this morning as he gives us your word, Lord. I pray in your awesome name, Lord. Amen. Now we're talking about John Mark this morning. We're going to read in Mark chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Two uh, snapshots there of a young man. Chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, verse 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Come to chapter 16. Chapter 16. At verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. They're coming on to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. At verse uh, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Come to verse 5 of chapter 13. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, that's John Mark, as their assistant. Come down to verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Bamphylia, and John, that is John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Come to chapter 15. Chapter 15, at verse 36. Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren, in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, which of course was the home country of Barnabas and Mark. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now it's a very hot morning this morning, so I'm going to give you a summary of my message in uh, 10 minutes and then we're going to look at the outcomes. You've got the notes and you'll be able to fill in my summary. 
you didn't think I could preach without an overhead, I can. Three things we're going to see about John Mark this morning. First, his circumstances. Then we're going to see his double crisis. And then we're going to see his comeback. So three C's for you to remember. His circumstances, his crises, and his comeback. Let's look first at his, uh, at his uh, circumstances. He was a native of Jerusalem, which was a great cause for pride amongst Jews. To be born there was quite something special. He was a Jew by race and he was a Jew by religion, so that he kept to the laws of Moses religiously. And if there were ever a city in which there was such dogmatic, emphatic emphasis on being of the Jewish race and of the Jewish religion, it was Jerusalem. And it's epitomized in the life of John Mark. He was a true blue Jew all the way through. Now that's his circumstances. Now let's come to look at his crises. It is generally agreed by both old and commentators, and I notice by some of the newer ones too, that the young man that fled in the garden was John Mark. And he's writing his own signature of writing. If you go to Matthew, Mark or Luke, there's no mention of the young man in the garden. So Mark must have had special knowledge of this young man. Of course he did. He was the person. He lived in Jerusalem. He was within the stone's throw of the garden. And by the way, he knew his way around Jerusalem too, like many young men do. They are out and about and they are into it. Well, he wanted to see what all the hubbub was in the arrest of Jesus. And so he got a bit too close and the soldiers laid hold of him and took his garment and he dashed away with nothing on. He didn't stay to stand by Jesus as he went to the cross. He went away shamefaced. And for all his bravado and for all his youthfulness, he took his scuppers and fled. This, of course, is a big concern in our day of many youth who don't seem to think that the Christian faith is worth even considering. Come close to them, and boy, come real close, and they don't want to know. They want to run as far as they can go. Because to come is to be committed. And that's the last thing they want to be, committed. A lovely verse in Lamentations would not fit the average young person, which says this, It is good for a man, whether male or female, to bear the yoke in their youth. And... John Mark wasn't one of those. Now, first crisis then was fleeing in the garden. The second crisis is on the, on the first missionary journey. 
And they hadn't got very far, by the way. Barnabas and Saul had been called to the work, but they had brought John Mark from Jerusalem with them after being up to for the first mission, first journey to Jerusalem. They brought young Mark with them. I suggest it was because his father had, in all probability, died, and he now had Uncle Barnabas, who of course was an older cousin, as Colossians 4 shows, Uncle Barnabas to take him with them. But you look closely at the first verses of chapter 13 and you will find that Barnabas and Saul are called, but no mention is made of Mark. He was the baggage boy, as we say. He'd come out to see the sights. He was wanting to take a tourist trip and he was very happy to go along as long as Barnabas led the way. We all know that Barnabas was big-hearted and big-handed, and so, here we are. But at a particular point in the narrative, as you saw, Barnabas gives way to Paul, who is no longer called Saul, but Paul. And it's Paul and his company, and at that point, that flash point, where he is now beholden to another, no longer to Uncle Barnabas, but to Paul, he doesn't want to borrow it. So he deserts. He leaves them. And you will notice that the reference says he didn't go back to Antioch, he went back to Jerusalem. Now why Jerusalem? Well, his mother lived there. And he loved his mother's cooking. It was all Jewish. Oh, yes. He wanted to get back to home and back to that lovely Jewish food. Oh, I give you a number of reasons why he deserted, but I think as a young fellow, this is probably one of the chief ones. You see, to travel with Paul was to become all things to all men. And that meant that you had to sit at a Gentile table and eat Gentile food. Elias Kerr, who some of you will know, went as a missionary into Northland and told the Maori of the, of the area that he was coming to do mission work amongst them. So they invited him to a great meal. I said meal, didn't I? Well, it was actually a meal of eels. And here they put before him a plate full of eels with the slime still on them, but they were cooked. They told him years later if he hadn't eaten it, he would not have got even through the front door. He ate them and then put the plate out for more. That knocked the socks off them. They knew he was here for good and all. You see, uh, when you travel, you have to eat what's put before you, and you soon learn, as I have learned, to watch what the locals eat, because if they eat, there's a, pretty, a very good reason why they eat what they eat. 
Oh, yes. But he scampered home to Jerusalem. He didn't even have the courtesy to stop at Antioch on the way. And he left to face his Gentile brethren in that city and he wasn't up having a bar of it. Back to Jerusalem he went. Well, interestingly, Barnabas and Saul followed them back to Jerusalem after the dispute with Jewish radicals that wanted to have the Christians keep the law and be circumcised. And so back to Jerusalem came Barnabas and Saul. Now, of course, called Paul. And at the Jerusalem conference, he heard Peter speak, the very one that had brought him to faith. He heard Barnabas and Paul speak, the very one he had been associated with. And he heard James speak. And he realized how wrong he was to turn his back on the Gentile mission and to turn his back on people who were other than Jew. But of course, if you're a bigot, you can't accept anything else but what you have been taught and you stick with it all the way. You do. Well, after the furore of the Jerusalem conference and the agreement that was reached seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, they are returning to Antioch and Mark comes along for the ride again. It may well be that Barnabas invited them. So what now? Well, they get back to Antioch with the letter and tell all that the Lord has accomplished in Jerusalem as he has been accomplishing among them. And then, what transpires? Barnabas is determined. You notice that the, the New King James has got the, the nuances very well. Barnabas is determined to take John Mark them. He knows what Paul thinks of John Mark already, but he is doggedly determined that he is going to take John Mark. Paul thinks very much otherwise. He says, no, 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 we're not going to have come with a, a person who's already deserted us and already turned his back on missionary work. We're not going to have him. And I teach in assemblies right across where I've taught that if there's any question mark about a missionary, they don't get the, the nod. If you have questions about a missionary going to the field, those questions have to be resolved before they go, not when they get there. How many people have ended up on the mission field and come home and have to admit they were never called? And by the way, John Mark was not among those that God called. Only Barnabas and Saul was. Missionaries who go to the field have got to know a divine calling that this is of God and they can substantiate it. I tell you. Now, what now? There's a major division between them. 
And Barnabas takes Mark and heads for Cyprus, back to their homeland. And I no doubt on the way he's sorting Mark out in a very big way. Because Mark's comeback begins with Barnabas. What I told you last week, that just as Barnabas had been responsible for Saul being accepted by the church and actually being accepted as a front-run apostle, was by the hand of Barnabas. Now Mark is taken under the, the brotherly relative's wing. And back to Cyprus they go for how long we, they stayed there, we're not told, but it must have been enough to sort Mark out and to get him straight up and down and ready for further work for God. But if you read into the New Testament, you will find that his comeback wasn't only under Barnabas, it was also under Paul and Peter. Barnabas, then Peter, when you go to First Peter, you will find that at the end of the book, suddenly appears the name Mark. They of Babylon salute you, and also my son Mark. Now we're told, in no uncertain terms, that Mark is his son in the faith. It was Peter that brought him to faith. And I think the best lesson to help uh, a young convert is a person that's brought them to faith. When I said to the man that led me to Christ that I was called to missionary work the very night I was converted, he laughed and thought it was a great joke. He was right because I didn't go into work for another seven years and even then probably prematurely but there is a time when young fellows have got to get up and got to get going but he could have stopped putting me off but so strong was that call that if he laughed for half a, week, half a year he wouldn't have put me off. He couldn't. But Peter takes them under his wing. And if you come to read Mark's Gospel, there's a peculiarity in Mark's Gospel which is very interesting. If you read it in the third person, as it's narrated by Mark, but if you turn the third it sounds like Peter's doing the talking. It sounds as though Peter's the witness to all that went on. That Mark's Gospel is really Peter's Gospel. And he heard Peter preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching all the way to Rome. Because both Peter and Mark are in Rome when he writes First Peter. And along the way, he's heard that the foremost preacher of the New Testament church preaching his heart out. And he's recording it. You go through Mark's gospel, it's got a very strong sense of an eyewitness who's heard, who sees, and John Mark is writing furiously to make sure he gets all that Peter has had. So, Mark makes it under Barnabas, a relative, and under Peter, his father in the faith, oh, and under Paul. You wouldn't believe it, would you? You would have said if Paul had written them off, he was written off forever. Well, that's, that, that's too hard on Paul. That's too hard altogether. He didn't write them off. 
In fact, if you look closely at Colossians, he says, now you've, you, you, when Mark comes, you've, you've had a correspondence from me about it. Receive him. So there is an apostolic direction. If Mark comes, you've heard about his reputation, you know that he's a weak-kneed young fella, but if he comes, you give him a right world welcome and accept his ministry as the implication. If you read Philemon, that very short book in the New Testament, at the end of it you find that Mark is actually one of Paul's colleagues. Paul mentions a number who are in his missionary band at the close of the book, at the close of the letter. And here's Mark. Now, that should surprise, but the big surprise comes. Now, Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you also. He's profitable to me for the ministry. So John Mark made it under three wise old heads. Barnabas, Peter, and Paul. Now, Damien, I want the questions if I can, the learning outcomes, yes. And we're through. You've got them there as, as an inset in your notes. So, I do want us to look at these questions, these learning outcomes, because... I've got them all down as questions and I hope that you're going to give some further thinking to them too. Have we got young men like John Mark who are footloose and they're responsible? You don't have to look at your newspaper any, any separate day to know there are young men are out there doing so many crazy things. We have a society of young men and women who are absolutely loose and are just absolutely spreading a doctrine of we're free to do anything. And I have Christian people saying to me, well, everybody's doing it. Is that so? Christians dare to be different. Christians stand alone. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. Oh, yes. Well, what can we do about these, these free-ranging young people who are impacting, by the way, on our young people? Oh, yes. And hopefully our young people are impacting on them they got to stand their ground. Oh, yes, they do. Now, what can we do about them? Well, you and I have got to pray about them, and certainly if they're in our families, we've got to pray very much about them and pray that God will bring them to their senses and bring them to himself. Now, two, should we allow young men and women to go to the mission field as uncalled by God to this work? Now, this is, of course, it's a difficult area. Shouldn't they go on short-term courses and so on? If they've got a strong leader, yes. If they're going to see what missionary work is like, I have no objection to that. But if this is a kind of a substitute for 
the call of God upon a life to actually do a particular work, I say no. You see, I believe every one of us in this congregation today, if we're doing something for God, we should know a divine calling to do it. And if you say, oh, but I'm only teaching in a Sunday school. Is this the call of God for you? And don't you ever minimize Sunday school teachers. Edward Kimball, who you probably don't even know, brought D.L. Moody to Christ and determined under God that if there was one person in his Sunday school class that he would see converted, it was going to be D.L. Moody. Well now, come to three. How can we put backbone into our younger people in causing them to stand for God? How are we going to replace a backbone, uh, a wishbone for a backbone? What says you? Well, the first thing we need is strong fathers. I don't mean tyrants, but I mean fathers that will stand up and be counted. Second thing we need is praying mothers who are praying for this young life. And make no mistake about it, if you think prayer is an empty thing, I've been travelling this country for over 60 years and I can tell you that I have seen the prayer books of a number of sisters who have got in it the prayer they prayed and the answer and the thanksgiving that the prayer was answered. And I've seen books, exercise books full of women's prayers answered. I remember saying to a group of Bible school students when they were going to speak at an old folks' home, they said, whatever are we going to say to these people? And whatever are we going to sing to them? I said, sing this hymn. Tell mother I'll be there in answer to her prayer. They didn't even know it. We found it for them, they learnt it, and they went and sung it. And here was a dear old man in his 80s, and he broke down and cried and said, I will give in to Jesus Christ. My mother's prayers have been pursuing me all my life. I will give in. Well now, come to four. Shouldn't do older Christians see themselves as responsible for younger ones as to their service to God? Do you see yourself responsible for a younger? Because by the way, all of us have got someone following us. You know that? Every one of us is someone following us. We might not know who they are, but they are following us. They, they like us, they're close to us, and they're following us. Do you see yourself responsible for these young people? A sister in an assembly not far from here, her husband died and she said, what am I going to do, Mr. Boyens? I don't know that I can handle young people on my own. Always said, invite three or four. They will, they will, they will keep themselves entertained and you'll get a word in edgeways. She told me later, it works. It works. Mm -hmm. 
We are responsible for them, one, to set them a good example, two, to establish them in the faith, and three, to make sure that they're underway for God. Now then, come to five. I'm a younger person. Do I have three trusted older friends to help me, as Mark did? And should I? Well, you won't know, but last week when I spoke to you on Barnabas, uh, the Lord's tested me on my own ministry. A, a young man rang me up, or rather sent me an email. He sent me an email and said, I want you to mentor me, not from this church, by the way, from Hamilton. Can we meet for lunch and uh, talk about it? So don't you worry, there's young people looking for older people to mentor them. But do we see that um, our younger people have older friends? Are you an older friend to a younger person? Now, John Mark failed twice. You know the, the government dictum at the moment is three strikes and you're out. But I must be quite honest, the guys a fair few Christians that I know, two strikes and you're out. That true? Ah, it is so. You fail once, we'll give you another go. Fail twice, and you're a has been, you're a you're you're, you're done. Mm -hmm. Is that Christianity? Not really. Not really. I want to tell you, by the way, it does test the middle of older people in terms of patience and certainly in terms of persistence. I mean, after all, as one of my old teachers used to say, make every kick a boost, he said, and every mistake a stepping stone to success. That right? Well, come to seven. Both young and old fail. Oh yes, older people fail too, you know. They're only a bit more clever at covering their failures. Younger people fail and it's out in the public arena before you know. Because everything's so public for the young. Everything's so private for the old. But young and old fail. Oh yes, they do. Barnabas and Saul failed over John Mark, seriously, even though they did not fall out permanently, by the way. Paul can speak very glowingly of Barnabas when you come to 1 Corinthians 9. That's a long way after the events. Well, when young people fail, have we a strategy for helping them? And when older people fail, have we also a strategy for helping them? This is one of the, this is one of the tests of eldership. Eldership who are, who need to know the name and natures of all their people have got to know how best to manage the failure of the young and how best to manage the failure of the old. Because we get our nose out of joint and very soon a root of bitterness can spring up and many become defiled, to quote Hebrews, and we're on our way. 
Brian Goodwin was quite right. We are very good at raising up gift. We're very poor at keeping it. Hmm. Now, how do we think Mark made good? Does then what happened to him apply to us? If Mark, who failed twice, could come back to such a glowing report of the apostles, bring Mark with you, he is profitable to me for the ministry. If that can be so, and that needs to be written into our minds, we have got to say, we must have a hand. We must be proactive in the life of the young. We must not be passive. We must be proactive. Well now, happy reading through all the rest of the handout and see how well I've summarised. Let's pray together. This day, our God and Father, we pray for your good hand of blessing upon each of us. We do need the blessing of the Lord that make us rich and adds no sorrow with it. We do need, as both young and old, to know that you are calling us not only to come to faith, but also to come to fellowship and come to take our place in the fighting ranks of the Church of God. Help us, we pray, to this end, that all glory may be given to your great and holy name. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.